Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Story Box, where I, your host, Jay Phantom has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox the amazing stories of some incredible people from all walks of life and experiences. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the story box and hear more about our guest today. We all struggle with something, but no matter what we are struggling with, always know that change is possible. Well, everyone, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Judd Brewer to the Storybox podcast today. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Judd is, over the last 20 years or more, I should say, Dr. Judd has experience with mindfulness training and has a career in scientific research. He is passionate about understanding how our brains work and how to use that knowledge to help people make deep, permanent change in their lives with the goal of reducing suffering in the world at large. Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as a research affiliate at MIT. I'm pretty sure that most of you would know those universities. Before that, he held research and teaching positions at Yale University and the University of Massachusetts, I can't even say that, Center for Mindfulness. As an addiction psychiatrist and an internationally known expert in mindfulness training and treating addictions, Dr. Judd has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. Now, I personally went through emotional eating and anxiety or binge eating, they call it, and it's not fun at all. We dive further into that, into our conversation. It's about to happen. But a little bit more about Dr. Judd as well. This guy is absolutely fascinating. Based on the success of his programs in the lab, he co-founded Mind Sciences Inc. to create app-based digital therapeutic versions of these programs for a wider audience, working with individuals, corporations, and hospital systems to put effective evidence-based behavior change guidance in the hands of people struggling with unwanted behaviors and everyday addictions. More than that, Dr. Judd has studied the underlying neural mechanisms of mindfulness using modern science and ancient wisdom first discovered over 2,500 years ago by looking at the default mode network and the role of the posterior uh, cingulate cortex and in in self-referential thinking. He regularly gives talks on the intersection of how modern science and ancient meditative practices help to expose a modern audience to specific techniques and insights. He has published numerous peer review articles and book chapters, trained U.S. Olympic athletes and coaches, foreign government ministers and corporate leaders. His work has been featured on 60 Minutes, TED, Uh, His talk in 2016 was the fourth most viewed with over 10 million views. Time Magazine has called it the top 100 new health discoveries of 2013. Forbes Magazine, CNN, BBC, NPR, Al Jazeera, documentary about his research was conducted, The Washington Post, Business Week, and many, many others. Dr. Judd is an amazing human being, got so much wisdom and knowledge under his belt and we had an amazing conversation we go for over an hour uh talking about this this uh huge topic of addiction and mindfulness and how we can become better at 
controlling our own addictions and mindfulness and uh, some other things we talk about going back to one of the first questions I always ask people, which is Dr. Judd's version of success, mindfulness and what real mindfulness looks like for a person. The Dr. Judd backstory is why, why he does what he does. Challenges involved with studying mindfulness and addiction when no one else was really studying addiction and mindfulness at the time Dr. Judd was or had decided to study it. Uh, new things that Dr. Judd found when studying mindfulness. So that's very fascinating to hear. The difference between habits and addiction. So looking at uh, good habits versus bad habits and good addictions versus bad addictions. Very fascinating. Uh, the definition of what an addiction actually is and uh, diagnosing bad addictions. So actually knowing what they are, and what they look like, knowing how to deal with habits around anxiety. That's a very fascinating uh, area that we dive into as well. Social media addiction. Ah, that's a very good one. I know it's going to hurt a lot of people. It hurt me when we we're talking about it and how Gen Z uh, has an issue to do with stress as a result of social media. Listen up for all you young people that are uh, listening to this. This is for you. Strategy, strategies to help you when you are stressed and anxious. So we go into that. It's quite fascinating as well. What negative information does to your brain? <laughs> Once again, very, very fascinating. The hardest addiction to overcome or is there one? Uh, the smoking epidemic addiction, epidemic addiction, I should say, addicted to self and addicted to thinking. We dive further into that on this conversation. This is a really fascinating uh, deep dive into a lot of different topics revolving around addiction. Uh, I know you guys are going to get a lot out of it. So without me going on and on and on, it is time for me to shut up and dive into the story box and hear more about Dr. Judd's story. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, sir. And before we dive into, I guess, why you do what you do and and all the, the science behind it. Now, I didn't study science in school. In fact, I actually failed it. But I am very fascinated, very curious about this topic of addiction. But I usually have one question that I love asking people to start off with. And that is, what does success look like to you? Mm, great question. I see success as uh, living a, a fulfilled life where one has no regrets. Mm. Where did this idea of success come from for you? Was it more of a gradual thing over time or was there like a catalyst moment somewhere for you? I think it was a series of learnings through failings <laughs> <laughs> in the sense of, you know, I, I grew up uh, without a, a whole lot, you know, my mom raised four kids by herself. And so, you know, um, learning about things where it's, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness. Not that I have, you know, that I'm, I'm extremely rich, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm live comfortably and, you know, that's not what leads to happiness um, and success. Um, you know, trying to garner, uh, you know, uh, people's attention and, you know, get a bunch of likes on a, on a YouTube or a Ted talk video, you know, that doesn't, <laughs> you know, you can get those things, but they often, at least for me, you know, feel empty afterwards and uh, often just you know, prompt me to want more. And so here, you know, those failures or kind of learning like, Oh, that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it. That doesn't do it. And then also seeing what does do it where, you know, I'd started meditating at the beginning of medical school and started learning about my own mind and how my mind worked and started seeing that there's actually, you know, success on a moment to moment basis rather than, you know, like in 20 years, I will be this um, and <laughs> fill in the blanks, which hopefully this makes me happy. Um, really, it's about the connection with people on a moment to moment basis uh, trying to do the best work I can on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And ultimately, what I found most kind of really fulfilling is, is helping people and being of service. And that seems to be, on a momentary basis, very rewarding and also one that leads me you know, feeling fulfilled and uh, getting to sleep easily at night. <laughs> I love that. Where did this 
I guess, passion and desire come from to learn more about the brain? And why did you want to actually study mindfulness, addiction, how the brain works? So why did you want to do that? Yes, I in uh, I, w- I was did this joint MD PhD program where uh, you do a couple of years of medical school and then you do your PhD for as long as it takes to forget everything you learned in medical school. <laughs> and I was studying molecular biology in, during my PhD years, looking at the intersection between immunology and endocrinology and neuroscience. I was really interested with you know just fascinated by the question of like why do we get sick when we get stressed? I, I actually. Mm. Uh, that led to a, a, a big interest of mine, and I started studying it. You know, at the level of the mouse, can we knock out specific genes to understand the interaction between stress and the immune system? We can learn those things, but ultimately, you know, I remember somebody asking me the question, like, "Well, how do we know this applies to humans?" You know, when we discovered a, a few things, and I couldn't answer the question. I could say, "Well, you know, maybe," but I couldn't actually answer that. And at the same time, I was meditating myself and starting to realize how little I knew about my own mind. And as I learned more about that, uh, finished my PhD, went back to finish up medical school, uh, I started seeing the intersection between where people were really struggling with addictions and habits uh, and where there was a big deficit in our knowledge base around, you know, how, uh, how we can actually change habits for, for the better. Uh, we were notoriously horrible at treating addictions uh, in the addiction psychiatry field and in the addiction medicine field. So I remember uh, taking this plunge where I, I decided to study mindfulness and I remember somebody telling me that it was going to kill my career because, you know, I'd, I'd published well, I'd, you know, learned a bunch of things in molecular biology. And they said, well, you're an expert here, but it really didn't feel uh, like the place where I wanted to wake up every morning and, and get excited to go to work. I wanted to try something where I really could see uh, and, and test the effects of these things that I was seeing in my own life in actual humans to see if this could actually affect not only my patients in my clinic, but uh, do clinical research to show that this this was generalizable, not just something that happened in my clinic. And so I shifted my whole career to studying mindfulness. This was during residency training. I had to retool to learn neuroscience, to learn neuroimaging, to learn clinical trials, but it was a really exciting time. Uh, not that it wasn't stressful, you know, because I was doing something completely new, but it really felt like the right thing for me to do. So speaking about the challenges involved with actually studying mindfulness, addictions and everything, because you mentioned there for a moment, it hadn't really been done before and there hasn't been much research. So how did you go about doing it? Like what was the process like in studying it in the first place? Did you know where to, to begin? I, you know, I had some guesses, some educated guesses as to where to begin. And those came from my own personal mindfulness practice. So I've been practicing mindfulness for about 10 years myself personally, just uh, learning the ins and outs of it uh, to understand my own mind. And I started to see uh, parallels when I was seeing patients where they were speaking the same language that I'd been learning in my own meditation practice. They're talking about craving and clinging and struggles with getting attached to, you know, to perseverating about drug, you know, using drugs and whatnot. And I, I just thought, you know, this can't be a coincidence that, you know, this ancient Buddhist language, this ancient Buddhist psychology is lining up with, with my patients who are struggling. Mm. And at the same time, you know, the techniques that I've learned to help my patients, you know, just tell, you know, if somebody wants to quit smoking, just tell them to set a quit date from two weeks from now, give them some medications to maybe help with the withdrawal and then wish them good luck. (laughs) I mean, I mean, there are a few other things, but the, you know, the smoking rate, uh, the smoking cessation, cessation, um, metrics at the time, you know, the average person that tried to quit, uh, stayed quit, uh, a year later was, was only 5% of people that could actually maintain, abstinence and with other drugs of abuse, it it really wasn't much better. Mm -hmm. So here, all of these things were lining up where, you know, I I was like, well, let's study, you know, this ancient Buddhist psychology. It it can't do worse than what we're doing right now. Wow. So speaking about this topic of mindfulness and what mindfulness really is and what it entails, Mm -hmm. did you discover what, what what were some of the things that you discovered that were new? In, in your research as opposed to when you first started? 
Well, one thing I learned, so this was this was already known, this wasn't something I discovered, but one thing I learned was that mindfulness is really about changing one's relationship to one's thoughts and emotions. So I had formally trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, where the saying, there's the saying, catch it, check it, change it, which is kind of the, uh, the one-liner on CBT, where you, know, you catch a cognition, you check to see if it's true, and then you change it to a different cognition. Mm. But what had been recently discovered at that time was that uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy relies on the prefrontal cortex, the, the kind of cognitive control part of the brain, and that that part of the brain goes offline when we get stressed or when we get anxious. And these are the major predictors of relapse. So here we were relying on a part of the brain that is uh, unreliable, especially when it comes to addiction. So that was one thing that was that was being discovered as I was going through residency and I was learning about this. Mm. And the other thing was that mindfulness you know, isn't about changing anything. It's about changing our relationship to whatever it is. So if it's a craving, we change our relationship to a craving. And I remember I had a patient, I was working at the VA hospital in the US, this is the Veterans Administration Hospital. And uh, my patient came in and he said, doc, you know, if I don't smoke a cigarette, my head's going to explode. And I was a little panicked and I was like, well, what do I do? So we went up to my whiteboard and I just had him start describing his, what it felt like, what head exploding felt like. Mm -hmm. And I would write it down and, and then have him describe it if it was getting more intense or less intense. And it, it got more and more and more and more intense. And then it started to peak and get less and less and less and less intense. Mm. And what he discovered, and this was, um, I was just kind of playing out some of my own mindfulness practices in real life. What I had learned was that, you know, as you notice these thoughts, emotions, and sensations, that they come and go on their own. You don't have to do anything about them. For my patients, typically with some, when that craving got really strong, they would smoke a cigarette and they would associate smoking a cigarette with making the craving go away, which it would do temporarily. But at the same time, it would perpetuate the habit loop. Now, this was also known, you know, operant conditioning, reinforcement learning. Eric Kandel got the Nobel Prize in 2000, showing that this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So what, what I started to do is bring all of this stuff together. And I noticed a parallel between the ancient Buddhist psychology and the modern day concepts of operant conditioning and actually published a paper on this uh, back in 2012, 13, something like that, where we showed, you know, this ancient Buddhist psychology is actually describing the same thing as modern day uh, psychology. So that parallel that link that we made, I worked with a, a Buddhist scholar, a, a Pali scholar on this to make sure that we were getting this right, um, was showing that, you know, the Buddhists had this concept, this framework that was basically playing out in modern day and that we could actually start to use this framework as a testable hypothesis. Could we, you know, could we actually target this operant conditioning loop? And so started employing mindfulness training, did a study with alcohol and cocaine use disorder, found that mindfulness was as good as gold standard treatment for preventing relapse, did a, a larger randomized control trial where we offered mindfulness training for smoking cessation, got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And here we could show mechanistically the mindfulness was specifically targeting this habit loop where it was helping people be with a craving, just like that uh, patient that I mentioned. And instead of acting on it, they could bring in uh, just uh, observation, awareness, and notice the thoughts, notice the emotions, notice the sensations, watch them come and go and not act them out. And in fact, this could decouple the craving and smoking. So here we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We could link this up mechanistically. We could then package this into app-based mindfulness training, where we made this app called Craving to Quit. And we even made one for eating uh, called Eat Right Now, where we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. And there we even showed mechanistically that you could decouple the craving and eating. So I know I just mentioned a bunch of things, but that's what we started to notice was that we could line up the ancient Buddhist psychology with modern psychology. We could use that to provide a mechanistic framework, target that specifically. And through targeting it, we could get huge changes in behavior. Mm. There's so much to unpack in that and uh, what you were just saying there. I guess for me, trying to distinguish between, you mentioned habit and then addiction, the correlation that, or is there something different about a habit and addiction and trying to distinguish between, okay, well, people say create good habits in your life, but then you also say that you can also create bad habits in your life, which then does that lead to addiction? 
Yes. So I, I learned this very simple definition of addiction back in residency, which is still uh, informed today, basically the same uh, definition, which is continued use despite adverse consequences. So here we can see, you know, forming a habit around tying your shoes, for example, good habit, right? No adverse consequences there. You're less likely to trip. Uh, yet we could also see, you know, if somebody got caught up in smoking cigarettes as a way to cope with stress, that formed a bad habit. So there's continued use despite adverse consequences. Somebody was having health effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we also noticed was that you can actually even form habits around anxiety. So this is a real light bulb moment for me, you know, working with anxious patients you know, we're supposed to use these medications, you know, they work for some people, not for everybody. Uh, and some of the medications can actually be addictive, like benzodiazepines. So the recommendation is only to use those for a very short period of time to help somebody through a very short period of anxiety. Mm. So we can't use those long term. So I needed to start understanding, you know, how to help these patients. And when we were doing clinical studies with our Eat Right Now app, People started in the program started saying that they were eating because of anxiety, you know, and that anxiety was triggering eating. So I looked back at the literature and started to see back in the 1980s, this guy T.D. Borkovec was talking about how anxiety is, is perpetuated in the same habitual manner as stress eating or, um, or even smoking. And so we developed this unwinding anxiety app. We'll go through all of this because I, I know, uh, you know, we're, we don't have a ton of time on this, on this interview, but basically we got, you know, we did a study with anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in clinically valid anxiety scores. And then we, we followed that up with the randomized control trial of people with generalized anxiety disorder. Now folks with GAD, they're like the Olympians of worry. They are really good at worrying. 63% reduction in clinically valid anxiety scores, whereas with people who just used, did the regular clinical care uh, treatment as usual, they only had a 15% reduction. Wow. So here, this is all just lining up really, really beautifully. And all of the underlying um, mechanism here is bringing awareness to the process and seeing that these things, you know, smoking or overeating or being anxious aren't actually that rewarding. And that actually taps into the brain's natural reward-based learning system. So speaking about that, do you think that all addictions are based on a chemical imbalance or is there something more to that? Well, all addictions have to do with our neurochemistry. So in one sense, there is a, you know, we can say that general statement, all of these, all addictions have to do with underlying neurochemistry. We also know that generally speaking, I don't know any exceptions to this, is that the dopaminergic uh, reward system is involved in addictions. And there are all known drugs of abuse are shown to uh, affect the dopamine system in one way or another. Interestingly, eating also affects the dopamine system, as does social media. Ah, here we go. Here we <laughs> yeah. Go. So there have been some studies, and I wrote about this in my book, The Craving Mind, where um, you know, people have done uh, studies simulating Facebook, basically, and they get activation of the nucleus accumbens, which is part of this this dopamine system, they can actually show that they can predict the amount of time people spend on social media based on how much their, their nucleus accumbens is activated. There's another study with Instagram showing that the more likes you get on Instagram, the more your uh, dopaminergic system is activated. And so, you know, it's like, basically, it's not just chemicals that can affect this dopamine system, it can be behaviors as well, uh, mm -hmm. such as going on social media. Which is a fascinating line of thought as well. And I was reading some of the uh, the information that Natalie provided for me regarding Gen Z, millennials, and all that sort of stuff about the stress factor and why we stress. It's not just because of COVID. It's because of what is portrayed mostly on social media, which is the negative information that is we're being bombarded with which then can lead to more anxiety, more stress, like we feel like the world's going to end, our life is, is, um, is crazy and we, have this, we don't have this sense of balance anymore because of this and uh, this, this app. And the difference between Gen Z, millennials and my, my parents' generation and, and all that, having to go through what stress looks like young people are struggling with higher amounts of stress nowadays anxiety 
than what my parents did because of social media. So how do we combat that? Yes, it's a great question. And the first part of the answer there is we, we have to understand how we have to know how our minds work. If we don't know how our minds work, we can't possibly work with them. So let's use social media as an example. Uh, you know, our fear is actually a good learning mechanism. It helps us survive. So we often fear gets coupled with something else. So fear is, is kind of an old brain phenomenon. It's, you know, it helps us remember where food is. It helps us remember where danger is. Uh, yet that system layered on top of that is this prefrontal cortex that I mentioned earlier. Now the prefrontal cortex helps us survive in a different way it, through thinking and planning. So it plans, it kind of simulates the future based on past experiences. Yet when we don't have any past experiences to go on, that thinking and planning part of the brain starts to spin out in what-if scenarios. So for example, let's use the pandemic as an example. None of us that are alive have, uh, have experienced a pandemic of this magnitude before. So there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of what-if going on there. And our thinking and planning brain starts thinking, you know, what if this for, you know, am I going to lose my job? Um, what's my, you know, what's my pension going to look like? You know, what's this and what's this and what's this? And there are a lot of studies. Uh, ShareCare even did a study uh, in Australia. They partnered, I think, with Executive Health Solutions where they found that, are you ready for this? 67% of employees were worried about COVID-19, you know, uh, primarily due to potential loss of employment impact on their superannuation, you know, difficulty paying bills, all this stuff. This is a worldwide phenomenon because we don't know what's going to happen. So there's our thinking and planning brain. Pair, you know, it's got its fear mechanism that is it's getting fed uncertainty as a substrate. And when you feed it that, you get anxiety. Mm. On top of this, so this is where social media comes in. You can, you can uh, distance yourself, you know, two meters from somebody to uh, prevent the spread of a social I'm sorry, of a physical virus, right? You can wear a mask, you can make sure you're socially distanced. Yet with, um, there's this thing called uh, uh, basically social contagion, where it's the spread of affect or emotion from one person to another. Well, somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world, right? If so, if you go on social media and everybody's panicking, right? If you pick up your weapon of mass distraction and you go on there because you're stressed and you check your social media feed and everybody else is stressed, you're just going to catch that contagion from them. Mm. So there, that's where anxiety can even turn into panic. You know, this wildly unthinking behavior because we see everybody else panicking and then suddenly we're panicking simply because we've been scrolling through our phone. I don't know what it's been like over in the States, but we had this mass problem. It is a, it is a problem because it's sort of like the second wave of it is happening now. And you just ask yourself, why is this happening? But we had this toilet paper epidemic. So we had the, we so had, did we. oh my goodness. I don't understand it. Like of all things for people to go crazy over and to fear missing out on, it was toilet paper. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about this, this, this thought of fear because fear essentially is a good thing in mm -hmm. a way because it protects us from dangers. It's like fight or flight syndrome in a way, but how can we sort of manage that? So what are the things that we can put in place, the mindfulness tips and tricks that we can do to make ourselves aware, okay, fear is not exactly going to be a bad thing in our life all the time. What are some of the things that you recommend that we do? Well, it's funny you mentioned the toilet paper uh, because that that social contagion might have been caught from somewhere in the United States. It was one of the first things that people started hoarding in the United States for no reason. And my my guess, my working hypothesis is that somebody was at some grocery store early on when everybody was freaking out. You know, and somebody else went to the grocery store and they had their list of things to buy. And then they see this person hoarding toilet paper and then their their thinking brain goes offline and they think scarcity. Oh, no, I need to get toilet paper, even though they probably don't need it. And there's no reason that we would run out of toilet paper. Mm. So they run and get toilet paper. The next person sees them. And then somebody posted on social media saying, everybody better hurry. You know, they're trying to help out and say, everybody better hurry up and get toilet paper. Yet they're spreading that social contagion around, you know, toilet paper. There's, and it, that's just an example of that. So what can we do? Well, the first thing we have to do is understand how our minds work, right? So if we can start to see that we're being triggered, we're at the grocery store, we've got our list. 
and we see somebody with a, a cart piled high with toilet paper, the first thing we need to do is is pause, right? In medical school, I learned uh, this thing where if, if somebody is having a heart attack, the first thing that I'm supposed to do is take my own pulse. Now, that seems that seems paradoxical, but the idea there is if I'm not calm, I'm actually going to make things worse for the person having the heart attack. Them out and yeah. 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 So if I can pause and make sure that I'm grounded and I'm calm and collected, then I can actually proceed to help, right? And mm-hmm. if I'm freaked out, I'm, I'm actually a liability. I'm getting in the way. So here, I, I love the simple mindfulness practice of just kind of feeling, some, feeling your feet, right? Our feet tend to be an anxiety-free zone. <laughs> so, uh, and I've, I've had a number of people, you know, that have been in my meditation groups or people that I've taught or whatever, practice this where it's just like, you know, feel your feet. What do your feet feel like? And get really curious. Oh, are they warm? Are they cold? Is one foot warmer than the other? Are they tingling? You know, do they, can I feel the pressure of my feet on the floor or the ground? Literally grounding ourselves in our feet. Mm-hmm. So that's really the essence of mindfulness is being present with what is. And as we ground ourselves in our feet, that helps that wave, you know, that wave of adrenaline, that adrenaline surge to pass so that we can actually keep our thinking brain online and then we can proceed. Oh, <laughs> you know, I'm at the grocery store. Somebody else is panicking. I don't need to panic because we can, at that moment, I, I can actually think as compared to just going on survival mode. Mm. So there are no, you know, that's just one example of a bunch of different, very short, simple practices that we can do to simply ground ourselves in the present moment. Uh, I'll, I'll mention one other uh, that I absolutely love. Um, and actually the, you know, the TED Talks, they, they just put out a short video on, on Twitter uh, where they, they did a beautiful diagram of this um, because I, I'd done a short YouTube video on this and then they, they asked if they could kind of re, repurp, republish it. But basically it's called five, uh, five Finger Breathing where you know as you breathe in, you trace up you take your index finger and you trace up the outside of your pinky finger. As you breathe out, you trace down the inside of your pinky finger. And as you breathe in, you trace up the outside of your ring finger and so on. And you basically, over the course of five breaths, you trace your entire, your entire hand, five fingers. Next five breaths, you can trace the other way. So in 10 breaths, what we can do is we can use up all of our dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, this working memory part of our brain, to really stay grounded in the present moment. And what that does is it fills up the space so that our anxiety brain, you know, our anxiety habit doesn't have time to, or doesn't have the space to actually be spinning out. And then when we finish, our physiology is calmed down. And even if the anxious thinking comes back online, uh, it has much less of an emotional bite because it is, you know, it's, they're just thoughts. They're just emotions as compared to, oh no, you know, we're in freak out mode. Mm. So those are, those are two very simple examples that, uh, you know, feeling our feet, doing a five finger breathing, bunch of different mindfulness practices that can really help us ground in the present moment so that we can not get caught up in the social contagion of anxiety and panic. I love the breathing aspect because that's one of the things I didn't do uh, in, in high school because mm. HSC came around and I remember I was so stressed, so anxious that I was going to fail these exams because I wasn't exactly the smartest kid in school and I was so worried about this aspect of failure and what was going to happen to my life if I did fail these exams, having to repeat and all that sort of stuff um, that I, I thought I was having a heart attack. Like I felt like my chest was caving inside me. I felt a tingling and all this sort of stuff. I wasn't really breathing properly. Mm-hmm. And I remember the school had to call an ambulance, I think three, four times in that year all because I was having panic attacks and the the ambulance officers were like so kind to me. They're like, you're not having a heart attack, Jay. You are just stressed and anxious. Remember, she told me this deep breathing exercise. She's like, breathing doesn't come from the chest. It comes from the stomach. So make sure that you in and out five times. It's almost like that, that five second thing, five second rule. It's like, if you feel like you are being too anxious or too stressed, count to five and then take a deep breath in and out slowly. And then that, that's what I love doing. It just brings me back to a place of what you were saying is being mindful of your present moment and 
being grounded in that, being grounded in reality. Don't focus too much on the what ifs because the what ifs will create more stress, more anxiety. I had a, I was in a relationship last year just really quickly and all she would do is focus on the what ifs. And mm. I was like, I'm not a what if person. I'm a what <laughs> is person. You know, I, I tend to focus on, on what the present moment rather than the future. I mean, I have a plan and a vision for the future, but that I don't allow that to worry me because it hasn't happened yet. I, I focus on what can we do right now to help improve our situation right now. And I think that is an important message and lesson for a lot of young people to understand because with social media, it's all about how can I look a certain way for tomorrow or in the past as well, what's, what's past is past. People were seeing photos from the you posted weeks before. People are seeing photos you're posting today and, and what are you they're anticipating what you're going to post tomorrow or the next day. It's like this constant and they're constantly seeing this news as well that is heavily portrayed, which just, it's an addiction as well. Human beings, I can speak to you about this forever, Doc, but it's about human beings crave drama. It's, yes. We, we can drive drama is addictive, just yeah. like social media, just like drugs, you know. And on social media, it's either got to be funny or, or outrage. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't get shared. <laughs> yeah. And it's like that, that thing that we're often seeing all the time is this negative information is, mm-hmm. is heavily shared on social media. And it really, really bugs me. But um, I wanted to ask you as well about the hardest addiction there is to overcome. Is there one? And what is, what is your, your take on that? Yeah, I think it's somewhat individual. I, uh, from a chemical standpoint, there are some. So for example, uh, cigarette smoking has a lot of unique characteristics that actually make it one of the hardest addictions to quit. So for example, you can smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. You can reinforce that habit 20 times a day. Whereas with alcohol, you know, it's hard, it's hard to get drunk 20 times a day <laughs> and repeat that day after day after day. The other thing is you can smoke cigarettes and still be functional, you know, cognitively and whatnot. Whereas, um, you know, drinking alcohol or smoking crack cocaine or using heroin all the time, you know, it t- tends to <laughs> render people pretty non-functional. So mm. that's, you know, that's an aspect. There are chemical aspects uh, related to cigarettes being very addictive. Uh, for example, the, all the capillary beds, the small uh, blood vessels in the lungs, if you line them up next to each other, they're going to fill either a tennis court or a football field. So the surface area is in the lungs is unbelievable, which makes it a really good drug delivery system, mm. which is why crack cocaine is more addictive than freebasing or, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, injecting um, cocaine uh, or and even much more so than uh, snorting cocaine because, you know, you have very small capillary beds in the nose. So that um, leads to a, a huge and rapid rise of cocaine in the bloodstream, which then uh, is proportional to the increase in dopamine in the brain. And so that makes it very addictive. Same for nicotine. Uh, when you can smoke a cigarette and get nicotine in there very quickly, which leads to uh, large spikes of uh, of dopamine when the um, uh, when it crosses the blood-brain barrier and affects the nicotine acetylcholine receptor. So I would say, from a chemical standpoint, probably cigarettes are you know if not the one of the most addictive or at least hardest uh, habits to quit. I would say uh, there's a difference between something being very addictive and something being uh, really challenging to, to break a habit. I've had patients uh, who've gotten addicted to heroin after a single use. Uh, whereas people, when they smoke a single cigarette, the first time they smoke it, they tend to get sick because it's a, it's a toxin mm. <laughs> and they have to actually build it, you know, kind of force themselves to smoke enough until they build up their tolerance. Uh, so that's, you know, that's how I think of it. But really, you know, if you expand this to the spectrum of you know, continued use despite adverse consequences, what I would say the hardest addiction to quit is whatever somebody's addiction is that they're really addicted to. So it's somewhat of a personal thing as well. 
some people it's easier for them to quit drinking alcohol than other people. Um, you know, and this has to do with personal, you know, probably genetic polymorphisms as well as context, you know, where somebody had a specific, um, you know, event or series of events that really uh, locked in their addiction. It makes it really hard for them to quit. As an example, they used to give K rations in World War II. Uh, so along with chocolate bars and food in people's, you know, in the, in the soldiers, uh, food, they gave them, I think it was four cigarettes a meal or something like that. So that was their K rations. So the cigarette companies were really smart. They knew if you associate cigarette smoking with somebody in it, putting them, you know, in a literally life and death situation, and they get addicted to those things, they're going to come home and they're going to smoke the rest of their life. So they have, you know, it was a it was a small sacrifice for this quote unquote sacrifice for them to offer up cigarettes uh, to the U.S. Army, for example, uh, knowing that all those folks are going to come home and be addicted. Wow! So I know moving moving towards I guess fixing this at kind of addiction and figuring out. You, you mentioned there the chemical imbalance. I know that my uncle smoked for a long period of time, and when he eventually quit, it was almost like shock therapy. So my grandfather had a heart attack. Uh, no, so he had a stroke and he also had a heart attack, but it was also the fear of losing his now wife because she told him, if you stop smoke, if you continue smoking, we won't be together. So he had to make a choice, quit cold turkey or continue doing it and lose my, my now auntie. So I'm curious about this possibility of actually, is it just, okay. Um, the, the will to actually quit or is there something more to it than that? Because like, I know it's hard for people to actually quit smoking in general. Cause I've got a, a couple of friends of mine that actually would smoke, but they've yes. transitioned that addiction to something else. Right. And that's often the case. I see this a lot with a bunch of different types of addictions where people will substitute uh, exercise. That's a big one that I see mm -hmm. where they'll, they'll become an exercise junkie uh, as compared to a, you know, a heroin junkie or an alcohol junkie or something like that. So th this really, you know, if it were as simple as just using our willpower, uh, I could just tell my patients to quit smoking and they'd quit. You know, I could just tell my patients to stop overeating and they'd stop overeating. And boy, would it be great for me to have to find another line of work. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, my clinic is pretty full because it's so hard, you know, to, to quit addictions. And there's this, I don't know where this heuristic started, but there's this strong reliance on willpower. Yet the neuroscience is suggesting that willpower is weak at best. You know, the prefrontal cortex it, where the seat of willpower is, is the weakest part of the brain. It's the first that goes offline when we get stressed, all this stuff. So it's not, you can't really rely on it to change behavior. Yet it seems to be something that we go to. You know, if you look at Weight Watchers, for example, they say, well, if you just, you know, I think they have a point system now or something like this. You know, you can, you can eat whatever you want up to these number of points and then just stop for the day. And it works, you know, calories in, calories out, the formula is correct, but then they can blame people for failing, not blame themselves for failing the people. Mm. Uh, but the truth is that's not, that's not how our brains work. Our brains learn based on rewards. That's why it's called reward-based learning. Mm. So really, if you want to change behavior for good, you have to actually get at that reward-based learning mechanism. So this is where mindfulness comes in and really gets at the heart, that root at, you know, at that core mechanism where we have people pay attention as they eat, as they smoke, you know, as they, as they get anxious, whatever. And what they start to see, you know, cigarettes don't taste very good. And <laughs> what, what that does is it helps update that reward value in their brain. Mm. Uh, because it got laid down, you know, for smokers, the typical person, at least in my studies, uh, has started smoking at the age of 13 and they lay it down and they, they're just habitually smoking. 
So when we have them pay attention as they smoke, we had a guy who'd been smoking 40 years. He'd reinforced this process 293,000 times. We calculated it out. And I had him pay attention when he smoked. And he's like, how did I not notice this? Well, it's because it's habitual. You know, you don't notice when you're walking down the street because it's a habit. You know how to walk. And habits can be helpful from a survival perspective, but they can also be unhelpful if we've kind of laid them down like smoking or overeating. Mm. So the first thing we have to do is kind of update that reward value. And the way to do that is to bring awareness to the actual behavior so you can see how rewarding it is right now. Mm. When somebody does that, and we've actually done studies uh, where it takes as few as 10 to 15 times of somebody doing this, whether they're overeating or smoking, for that reward value to significantly drop. We can even model this out mathematically. Once that reward value drops of the current behavior, it opens up the door for what I call the bigger, better offer, the BBO. And there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that actually stores and updates reward value. And so it's always looking for the BBO. You know, think of broccoli versus chocolate. Your brain's like, chocolate, of course, right? (laughs) Or my brain, it's got a very very nuanced hierarchy of chocolate, you know, 40% chocolate. No, I won't touch it. You know, it's got to be at least 70%. And then you add in sea salt and Mm. a little cayenne pepper, you know, almonds, whatever. Um, So, you know, our brains are always looking for that bigger, better offer. And let's use your uncle as an example, not that I've ever met the guy, but as a hypothetical, he was being given a choice, smoke or, you know, be with my, my, um, my sweetheart. And so the sweetheart was the bigger, better offer. <laughs> yes. And so there he can say, well, you know, here's, here's the choice. And it's not in, I don't know how he quit, but sometimes people, they'll actually keep in mind the person that they're quitting for. And I've had a number of patients who quit for their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have a newborn kid and they want to quit smoking or they want to lose weight because they know they're in, in unhealthy, in, you know, at an unhealthy weight. And so they'll keep their kid in mind. And so when they, when they bring their kid to mind versus smoking a cigarette, especially when they see that smoking a cigarette tastes crappy, it's much easier for them to naturally um, move toward that bigger, better offer. Mm. The other thing that mindfulness can do is help people write out cravings. So if they have a craving for a certain you know, junk food or a cigarette, um, they can start to notice what those cravings actually feel like. Oh, it's tightness, it's tension, it's burning, it's whatever. And they can see that these are just thoughts, emotions, physical sensations that come and go. And then that way they don't, you know, they, they're like, oh, I can, in this moment, tightness, it's not going to make my head explode. Okay, I can be with this. And they can be with these cravings as they rise and then as they go away. Mm. So when it comes down to habits versus addictions, how can people actually determine and distinguish between, if I asked you this before, I apologize but determining the distinction between, okay, I'm, I'm just, I've just got a bad habit, whereas it might be an addiction. To me, they're really along the same spectrum, and it's probably the differentiation is probably not that important. Yep. The definition that I learned in residency training of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. So, you know, bad habit can be continued use and, you know, despite adverse consequences and an addiction can be continued use despite adverse consequences. Mm. So to me, it's really, you know, how adverse are the consequences and that determines how far down the spectrum, um, Mm. you know, this, this is, and, and it's somewhat of just a semantic thing at that point, whether you call it a habit or an addiction, it's still causing adverse consequences. Mm. So about that, and curing addictions, can we fully cure it? Or are we just a creature of habit that we're going to eventually fall back into it? Well, we are creatures of habit, right? Habits help us survive. Mm. And if we are thoroughly disenchanted with the old behavior, and we're more enchanted with the new behavior, we're not going to fall back into it. Or even if we do lapse for a minute or a moment, um, we're going to be like, oh, that wasn't so good. Why did I do that? You know, oh, habit. And then and then we were able to drop it. Mm. So do you think that we were designed somewhat to actually form bad habits? Well, we are certainly, you know, we've evolved to form habits. And I would say the modern day environment has created the conditions for bad habits. You know, before there was processed sugar, 
<laughs> you know, before people started manufacturing, you know, for example, coca leaves, right? For indigenous people in Central and South America, coca leaves were actually really helpful for them. Cocaine, not so much. But so it was when people started refining coca leaves into cocaine that it became a problem. Mm. Uh, you know, eating corn, it's a vegetable. But when you pull out all the syrup and you've got corn syrup, it's a cavity producer and it's a, you know, it's obesogenic, you know, it causes people, you know, if you eat a bunch of corn syrup, it's not good for you. Mm. So I think it's really the modern day environment where we've been able to refine things and distill out these, you know, these things that really jack our dopamine system. That's when uh, we started getting into bad habits. Mm. I want, I want to ask you as well, have there been any people that you have not been able to help with their addiction? There are certainly people that, that really, really struggle. Mm. And, uh, you know, fortunately, our, our clinical studies, like, for example, with, with anxiety, have been gangbusters. You know, we're getting like 63% reduction in, in you know, people with generalized anxiety disorder. Wow. So as people, but that's on average, you know, and some people do better and some people do worse. So certainly in my clinic, I've got patients who, you know, who have relapsed and they've struggled. But each time, if they can bow to that, I think of it as bowing to whatever it is as a teacher, they can learn from it. And every, you know, every learning moment um, is a step forward. And so in that sense, you know, some people think, oh, one step forward, two step backwards. I would say if you, if you learn from something, nothing is a step backwards because it's always going to move you forward. Uh, and in that sense, you know, we often learn more from our failures than our successes. Oh, yes. I always say that in failure, you learn humility. You learn more yeah. about yourself. And yes. you're at this point of your life where you, you can't go any further. So you, you literally got to stop and smell the roses, as it were. And just it's the best place to learn and yes. see yourself, really. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, we can redefine and start asking the question, like, what is failure? Mm. You know, because if you're learning, is that failure? No, you're learning. It's a different mindset, like looking at failure as a positive rather than a negative, which is what a lot of people actually do. And I got stuck in it because, you know, when you fail, it hurts for a moment, but it's only for a moment. And then you start seeing the growth after it. And that's, that's, for me, that's the most amazing thing. And that's where I came up with the humility aspect because you're at that lowest point of your, of your life. But humility is the key to actually absorbing information because you're not at this egotistical or proud level that you think that you are too good to learn. You, you yes. think, and I think a lot of people as well, I know for me, because I struggle with, um, I had like binge eating addiction and all these other things that sort of came sort of stemmed out of um, my porn addiction from when I was 12 years old. And once I got control of that, you're right. It shifted to another addiction, which was my body health, uh, binge eating, everything like that. So what I realized in that moment was my pride. I thought that I was better than the addiction. Hmm. But I realized that I wasn't. <laughs> and I needed to just get to this place of, okay, letting go, allowing other people to tell me and to help me get over these addictions and making myself accountable to somebody else, which helped me tremendously. But it was that point of, it was hard to actually realize that I did have an addiction. And a lot of people, I feel like they do struggle with that. They struggle with knowing the knowing aspect of it. And I think with pride and ego, that's such a big addiction in, in of itself because it's so. <laughs> yes. It's, yeah. Yeah. I wrote a whole chapter uh, in my book, The Craving Mind on addicted, basically addicted to self. And one, and there was a whole other chapter on addicted to thinking where we often think we love to think and, and then we get caught up in our own ideas and then 
get caught up in our own views and then, you know, <laughs> look at, look where this world is with so many people caught up in views. <laughs> it's all about uh, and it actually, yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. And it even, you know, it, it highlights an aspect of mindsets that uh, Carol Dweck, who is an educational researcher at, at Stanford, uh, wrote a book about called Growth Mindset. So, mm. you know, fixed mindset is literally what it sounds like. We've got a fixed idea of how things are. And she she uh, studied this in the setting of education, but I think this applies much more broadly. And then there's growth mindset where we're open and you've got to be humble. You need humility for to be in growth mindset. Uh, so, you know, it even highlights those differences um, between those two mindsets when we're, we're mm. stuck in our own selves, believing, you know, what's that uh, phrase? Don't believe your own hype. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because we are our own worst enemy most of the time. And if we don't, if we don't practice that mindfulness on a daily basis, we are almost conditioned to think negative things, we are conditioned to almost do bad habits all the time, although we don't always see it as a bad habit to begin with. Yeah. And there's this, you know, if you look at some of the ancient psychology, this, uh, the Buddhist psychology, there's this image of called what's called the hungry ghost. Yes. So you can imagine, you might've heard of this, but uh, just for your, your listeners, there's this ghost with a big mouth, a very thin, narrow, long esophagus and a huge belly. And the idea is no matter how much it eats, it's never satisfied because it can never fill its belly. And this is true for, for you know, literally uh, stress eating, but also true for, you know, our trying to have a, a you know, perception, you know, mm -hmm. put a perception out there and support that. You know, it's like it, we always need more likes and we need more retweets and we need more and more and more and more. And we, we're so caught up in the process of trying to do that, that we lose sight of the, of the fact that it's not actually very satisfying. It's, it's, it's emptiness provoke, or mm. uh, it, it really uh, supports this feeling of emptiness and not enoughness and not good enoughness. It's like this vicious cycle that keeps going around and around and around, and it won't break unless you break it for yourself. Like, right. Yeah. Right. And, and this comes back to habits where we have to stop and ask ourselves, you know, what am I getting from this? I have my patients do this a lot. You know, when they're smoking a cigarette, what am I getting from this? When they're overeating, what am I getting from this? When they're anxious and worrying for the 18th time about something, you know, what am I getting from this? They've got to see how unrewarding it is. Yet at the same time, they also have to be able to see, you know, find something that is more rewarding. So here, you know, I love, uh, there's this attitudinal quality of mindfulness, uh, which is curiosity. And, you know, we can start to even embrace curiosity as that bigger, better offer. I've had people in, in our anxiety program who can actually write out full-blown panic attacks by getting curious about those sensations, because that is the bigger, better offer. So here, you know, we've got to see how unrewarding it is to try to, you know, get a social image out there and, and how much is enough, you know, how much money is enough, how much power is enough, how much social media fame is enough. You know, it, it's never enough. You know, the famous quote, John D. Rockefeller, I think, you know, one of the richest guys in the U.S. back in the day, uh, it, it, you know, said, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Yeah. It's <laughs> so that's never enough. And then also have, yeah, we've, we've got to see how, how rewarding it feels to be content, to be connected, to be kind, to be curious. You know, those are things that never run out and they never, you know, it's, it's you don't get addicted to kindness. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great if, if we did. <laughs> oh, amen. Yeah. If the world was just a little bit more kinder, how much different would it be? And especially if they're a little bit more patient as well with people. Patience, kindness, and gratitude, I think, are the three pillars for just changing the world for a more positive, positive place, really. Which, which require the, you know, you mentioned earlier, humility. Mm. You know, I think humility is really key for all of those. Mm. Um, you know, because it's like if to be patient, we have to uh not be so caught up in ourselves. You know? Like I want this now. Well, you know, a little humility helps us learn to be patient. 
Mm. Uh, kindness, you know, same thing, a little humility. You know, if we say something that's mean, it's much easier to apologize and be kind to somebody. Mm. So, you know, I think humility underlies a lot of this. Oh, definitely. I was always brought up believing that curiosity was bad for me because that old saying, curiosity killed the cat, right? So I was always told that if if you are curious, you got to be curious about this. You can't be extra curious about this you know what i mean like it's always you're told you're spoon fed all the information that you are meant you are conditioned to believe you can't be more curious about that and what i found was that i was extra curious but i was always shut down i was always discouraged about asking the deeper questions and then oftentimes everyone would tell me all this information. I'd just be like, why? Why is that? <laughs> and there'd be two, I, I don't know if they're trying to protect me as such or they're just trying to shield me from the reality of the world. But I eventually saw it for what it was later on. And I, I, I saw it. And the moment I saw it, Dr. Jad, it was like this moment of realization. I was like, far out. I've been... I've been stripped of so much in my life and learning about habits, learning about addictions, learning about reasons why, learning about humility, learning about kindness. It all happened at once. And I was like, I've got to process all this. <laughs> mm. it, it, was, it was crazy. And it's one thing that I've learned through all of this as well by speaking to amazing people like yourself is that, Number one, it's humility. Number two, it's kindness. Number three is be persistent to remain consistent. Otherwise, you won't do anything else. And the last one was be the sort of person that or treat other people how you want to be treated as mm-hmm. well. And that's that mindfulness thing and that idea as well. Yes. yes. So I kind of forgot where I was going with that. But anyway... <laughs> Um, a couple more questions for you, Doc, if you don't mind. And that is what, what is your greatest achievement so far? Oh, I don't know how many achievements I'd really consider great. Uh, but (laughs) yes, I'm not sure I would, how I would answer that. You know, my labs discovered a few things that have been helpful. Um, you know, we've developed some apps that seem to be uh, clinically useful and, potentially very helpful for things like overeating and anxiety in a way that's uh, different than what's been out there previously. So I would, I would probably say, you know, the reach of our digital therapeutics and, and being part of the, you know, the, the early folks that were starting to define study and test these things. You know, we started our first digital therapeutic back in 2012, I think you know, way before that term was even invented. Uh, So I would say, you know, that, and then just trying to um, make the science that my lab studies accessible to people. And this Mm -hmm. is where I've been, you know, writing books. I just finished writing my second book. Um, It's actually going to be focused on anxiety and habit change. Um, And then put out a bunch of YouTube videos and, and, you know, short animations to help explain a lot of science to people. And that's, I I wouldn't call that a great, uh, you know, great thing, but I would, you know, seems like these things are helpful for people. And Mm. so that's, that's what I would, I would, that's how I would answer that question. That's good. I think you're the first one that answered it that way. And they're trying to actually really think about what is great, what is what is greatness in their life. And I think that's very important uh, for people to hear. And my last question for you, Doc, is this is my legacy question that I love asking people at the end. And, and that is you've reached the age of 100 and your friends have put together a mixtape for you or a video if you, if you want uh, of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how they got it. They just did. And they put it together for you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that mixtape or film to say and show about your life? Uh, it would be pretty short, and I would hope that it would say something like, "You know, this guy learned 
this guy was constantly curious um, and he left the world a better place uh, than, than uh, coming into it. Um, mm. Powerful. Something like that. Very powerful. Well, Dr. Judd, you've been an awesome person to speak to. You've been very informative. I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm grateful for your time today and uh, round two. <laughs> um, really appreciate your, your insight into this, this world of addiction and habits and mindfulness as well. So I know a lot of people are going to get uh, quite a bit of information from it. Uh, where can people find you? I have a website that's just drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D. Uh, also have a, a YouTube channel, the same name, Dr. Judd. Uh, and they can follow me on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. Well, I'll make sure that's all in the show notes below. But Dr. Judd, thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast. Thanks for having me. I don't like this part because it means that sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. Catch you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.